When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right. Welcome, everybody. On this episode, we have an interview with Brian Barnes, who is the CEO of M1 Finance. I was able to talk to him a little bit. Here is the interview. We had the last interview. Uh, I looked it up. It was 10 months ago. So May? Quite some time. Yeah. It feels yeah. like a lifetime ago. <laughs> it was a, a different environment as well. Uh, I was wondering, from then, do you remember how many employees your company had? M1 Finance had um, I don't know if I could exactly give the number in May. I could definitely look it up. I know that we started uh, 2020, so January 2020, with 38. Uh, we now have about 155. And so we've been somewhere along that that number, if May, probably 50, 60, something like that. So you went, you went from 38 at the beginning of, beginning of 2020 to now 150-ish? Correct. Okay. What are, what are your plans for like over the next year or so? Um, we're trying to double from where we are now by the end of the year. So we'll be sort of high 200, sort of, you know, ambitiously trying to get to 300 people by the end of the year. And so the the organization will be in a pretty fundamentally different place by the end of this year when compared to a year or two ago. Well, it seems like it. I, I've seen the trend overall. And I know you guys, you just announced, uh, what is it, Katu, an investment. Uh, they're like a hedge fund, right? I, I think a pretty public one that does a lot of tech investing. They led the last round of investment for you guys. Yeah, absolutely. So Kotu is one of the the premier hedge funds out there, and so they have been more famous in their public portfolio. And so it's right. the you know almost like the who's who of the tech names out there. But the interesting thing about Kotu is they invested in them you know ten fifteen years ago before they were before they were the who's who. They have since moved into the the private markets and have invested in a lot of the, the private companies that have become sort of your household brand names for consumer tech products and the like. And so we're we're super fortunate to have them as an investor and you know really really think that they're going to be able to support a good amount of growth at the M1 organization. Yeah, I remember when I first started a portfolio with M1 Finance, it was way back. In general, I don't even think the retail investor was as popular at that time. Like it was when kind of M1 Finance, Robinhood, these type of things were kicking off. Um, and there was like a lot of, you know, should I put my money in these guys or should I just stay with Schwab or, or uh, you know, Fidelity or Vanguard, like the, the more legacy ones. Uh, but how does it feel knowing, like my, my question is, is how does it feel knowing you're getting backing from these type of hedge funds now? Like, is it a, a source of validation? Are you looking at this like, man, we have Katu and like these, these serious investors and if you look at their portfolio, they have a wonderful portfolio of technology companies. How does that validate the company? Uh, it's, it's incredibly uh, exciting. And, you know, it's uh, definitely a result of a massive team effort. And so the the entire M1 organization is incredibly proud of what they've built over time. And, you know, having smart, sophisticated people saying you're doing a good job is always uh, a positive and you feel good about it and the like. Um, it does put the pressure on, you know, they're definitely looking for M1 to be a, a large organization into the future. And so we have those demands to fill. And just, you know, one piece of comment, you were talking about, you know, Vanguard and Schwab, the legacy players, which, which is interesting is at some point, those were not the legacy players, right? Vanguard started in the 70s, Schwab about the same time. 
And, you know, the Vanguard was fighting all the mutual funds. And, you know, it was sort of this, hey, you'd be silly to invest in an index fund. And it was just better product, better pricing. And over long periods of time, they become the behemoth. And same thing with Schwab. They were fighting, you know, Morgan Stanley, Merrill Lynch. And it was, you know, no, the individual investor shouldn't be doing this themselves. They should work with a high priced advisor or, or a broker um, and have also proved that model wrong. And so, you know, really, when we talk about M1, we, we, we look to those companies as we're trying to be the next generation Vanguard, next generation Schwab, really empower the individual investor with a, a better product, better price. And, and we know that it'll take a long time to become companies of their size and scale. Yeah, maybe to become their size, but I think the trust factor is moving along a lot faster. Like I when I when I started, I remember people would put they put on a hundred dollar like test deposit to see if it's like real and they can get their money back type of thing. And now there's accounts I see publicly on YouTube that'll have a million dollars on M1 Finance, you know? Um so I see the trust factor moving along a lot faster with with this the smaller you, you know, you have smaller assets under management than something like Fidelity Fidelity or Schwab. But I see the trust factor moving very quickly. Um, I have some questions on the whole growth of fintech in general, but before I jump into that, I want to ask: What are you? So you're receiving all this money. Seventy-five was it? Seventy-five million was it the last round. Yeah, that, that, that was the most recent round. We've been fortunate enough, you know, up through sort of start of 2020, we had raised twenty-five million dollars in our lifetime, and then over the last ten months, we've raised another uh, one hundred and fifty million. So. You know, it's you know six times the amount of money that we had raised prior to a year ago, and so we're we're in a very good position to to bolster right. every aspect of the the company. And I'm sure that's where the yeah. <laughs> what we're going to do with all that money is, is might be the the coming that's question. That's my next question. You have this money. What what are you doing with it? What's going? To, what are the growth plans from here? Yeah, you know, if, if you look at the companies that we just talked about, Vanguard and Schwab, you know, and you were talking about the trust factor of where do people with a quarter million dollars place their money. The, the, the default option is still a legacy bank, a legacy broker and the like. And, and they offer okay products. They, they have big scale, but they do have a very trusted brand name. Um, M1 has a long way to go to like significantly improve every single product that they offer. So if you look across the, the three main products that we do, how you invest, how you borrow and how you spend, I think there's incredible improvements that could be made across all three of those buckets. And so, you know, we built a lot of core product experience, core infrastructure to support it, but we have a long way to go to make it definitively the best uh, personal finance account that's on the market. You know, we're, we're really focused on sort of a best in class investing product, best in class borrow product, best in class spend product, and having all of them work together so that the whole is greater than some of the parts. And we just, you know, I, th that's sort of a end state of perfection. And, you know, you, we have a lot of work to do to there. We'll never get there. But, you know, how you're going to manage your money in five and 10 years, I think will continue at an accelerated pace to the improvements that have been made over the past couple of years. There's also just growing the, uh, the, the brand. I mean, you know, we now service over half a million customers. We have, you know, coming up on $4 billion on the platform. Um, it, we, we, that's meaningful traffic from a small, you know, fintech company that, that's growing. But, you know, the, the companies that we mentioned, like we're not a financial institution until we manage millions or tens of millions of, of customer accounts and tens of billions, if not hundreds of billions, and potentially even moving into the trillions uh, as you get to the, the behemoths in the financial space. So, you know, it, it's really just building better product, better pricing and growing the the overall organization to, to support that. Okay. Yes. Yeah, it is true. You're, it seems like it's growing pretty quickly, moving from like, one, I remember you announced you're at 1 billion asset center management, now you're under, under at four. And that must have been like, 
what a year in, in the time to do that but it's still it's, uh, 13 months yeah so so it's it's growing fast but you got a ways to go before you're one of the big players um all right so between between the different products that you have the investing product the the spend product like the banking product are is there any direction you're taking with it where you're going more into one than the other or are you just kind of splitting the effort between the three no, the, you know, you, you were asking about sort of the, what are we going to do with the money? You know, M1's history was we always had to do things more or less sequentially. So we, we, we started with invest, you know, then we put that on the table and let that bake. And then we moved on to borrow, built that. And then, you know, we moved on to spend and every single feature and functionality, we sort of had to, you know, not focus on anything else, build the new thing and then move on to the next. Right now we have, you know, the, the product team is, six, seven X, the amount of people that, that worked on a product at any given time. And so we can focus on a lot of things concurrently. And so the nice thing is we can like the, the, the focus is best in class automated investing platform and, you know, like have a team dedicated to that, a best in class borrowing experience. And we'll, we'll enhance and offer more capabilities around that on the spend side, same thing, best in class checking account, as well as any mechanism to spend and receive money and the like. Um, And we have the ability to, with the the new round of funding, pursue these things simultaneously. And so, you know, our, our product throughput and velocity should be increasing in a meaningful clip. Um, but, you know, the, the unfortunate thing is you get the money first, then you have to recruit the team, then you build the product. And so there is a little bit of a lag to seeing the improvements as a result of the, the money coming in. Right. But, you know, everything will improve in a pretty material capacity and the, the user should start to see that in a short amount of time. Okay. The, the other, uh, between those three project products, the spend and, you know, the big, I see a big concern with people that have, they, they want to go to M1 or they want to go to a, at least a FinTech, right? Cause most of the FinTechs are honestly, the technology's there. It's better than, it's going to be better, prettier, faster than something like fin, uh, Fidelity or whatever. But it seems like the bigger, the bigger brokerages, the advantages that they have are that people feel more secure. They have a phone number that can call anytime. Uh, they have a thousand customer service people waiting on the other the other line, and I see that as the biggest from what I've received. Like the just kind of what I've viewed online is, oh, I would put my money in M1 Finance, but I'm afraid I won't be able to get through the line because they're so busy or that type of thing. The same thing, even worse with Robinhood. It's like they don't even have a phone number to call. You know, you have to message them and hope that you get back in time. And with that, they're doing a lot more short term stuff. So sometimes it's even more pressing. But uh, the effort to ensure. Like if you're, if you're a consumer or a client of M1s, you know, I guess if the concern is we're not going to be able to get a hold of people or in in time or be able to get these uh, issues resolved, what are the efforts to be able to resolve that? So people can have confidence they're going to be able to get through. Yeah. You know, um, our, our, we have not like M1 has not done the job that we should on customer support. And a lot of it is due to the fast scaling nature of the organization and the, the growth that our user base experience sort of outpaced our ability to, to grow the organization. And we've unfortunately had to play a little bit of catch up. And so that, you know, okay. I've, I, I like that is hundred percent my fault, uh, not the fault of my team. We have an incredibly devoted bought in team that is super passionate about helping the, the end customer and, you know, servicing all their needs. They, they frankly just get more requests than any person can handle. And we are massively hiring, you know, adding tens of people a week. Um, you know, you, you were asking about the organization at the beginning of 2020. I think we had five customer support reps. We're now over 50. We're adding, you know, 10 every week. And so that, that team is getting uh, increased in a material capacity. 
I do think there is a um, sort of pace of change or, or evolution that you're going to see. And M1 has only been public facing for about four and a half years, where you look at uh, a Schwab, a Fidelity, a, a Vanguard, and you're, you have 50, 60 year legacies and, and you know, tens of thousands of people building stuff over time. That being said, like the, the pace of innovation for a 50,000 person Charles Schwab organization is quite slow. And, you yeah. know, M, M1 in four and a half years has built you know, more product, better product uh, is increasing at a faster clip. And so, you know, we, we do have work to do to catch up to them on a service perspective. I do think you you look a little bit out and sort of say in one year, two years, three years, I, I'm very confident that M1 will have significantly better service than, than Schwab at that point, whether it's through self-serve automated tools or, uh, you know, technology driven solutions or, you know, connecting with a, an individual person. Um, you know, the, the, I, I'm not trying to make excuses, but the, the right. unfortunate scenarios, you know, some of the, the like where, you know, sort of building, building things as they go. And, you know, there we have to support the current operations, support the future operations and um, have, you know, stumbled a, a time or two with that. But, you know, have all, all the uh, attention and time and energy to, to really improve it in a fundamental capacity. All right. Well, yeah, it makes sense because I didn't. I don't think anybody predicted, at least they would be rich if they predicted that <laughs> fintech sure. would explode like it has over the past couple years, uh, which leads me to another subject. So we know that M1 Finance has grown like crazy uh, and you guys have, you're getting, you're getting uh, investments from big management firms. When are you going to let us in on the action and let us invest in <laughs> M1? When is it going to be something where, where you either have a SPAC, you know, that we can join in? Because I feel like investors would very much like M1 Finance. I look at some other I look at some other IPOs and different things. You have, you know, different ones that I think are inferior products that get tons of public money right now. Has it ever been a thought or are you just keeping it uh, keeping it to private investment? I mean, it's uh, have two minds of it. I mean, you know, have built the entire business for personalized automated choice and the investments that you know, want, understand, and really long-term systematic investing in those securities that you you want to invest in. I would love nothing more than our user base to be able to invest in M1 company. And, you know, the promise that we're making is we're building M1 to be a, a durable, large financial institution that grows for for incredibly long periods of time. And that's what we're, we're building towards. Um, I think the, so like that side of my brain is absolutely would love to, to be able to offer that. The other side is just the the complexity associated with being public and the rules and regulations associated with it and sort of the distraction to the company as we're trying to really build a lot of the foundational stuff. And so unfortunately, like every time we've entertained it, the, the costs of going public have been too high where it's, we're better served being private for now and being able to be 100% focus and heads down on improving the customer experience and building out product and infrastructure and you know everything that will support the organization for many years to come. Um, so you know it, it's 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 those two things at tension of wanting to have the ability to to offer M1 as a product, but then yeah. uh, just sort of the cost and complexity associated with it. Okay. But I mean, spec mania is, is definitely real. We uh, we get hit up from a lot of these spec sponsors. I'm just saying. On. If, if, if you're looking for a time to sell to sell M1 out, this is the time to do it because <laughs> there's a lot of companies that I think I just I look at the the different fintechs coming up and obviously there's a huge demand in the market right now for any good equity. People are looking for quality. I consider M1 Finance to be a much higher quality bet than, a, than some of them in the market right now that are getting crazy, uh, crazy valuations and stuff. So I. Uh, Interesting, but it does make sense because if you're going public, there is a lot of a lot of red tape added to it. A lot of things you have to do in the first place. 
Yeah, for Love sure. It. I appreciate that. And, you know, I, I hope that to be the case that we're, we're building a, you know, very strong, durable company that, that exists for the long term. I think our, our, our perspective, like the nice thing is we now have the cash where we don't really have to worry about the next couple of years from a, what happens from a price perspective. We have all the money we need to, to build the thing. We just need to execute on it. And so being able to, to, you know, focus on making the investment, hiring the right team and not having, you know, the, the whims of the market sort of distract uh, people from a day-to-day -day basis. But uh, I, I do think there is a, a big macro trend of fintechs, I think going to be huge that, you know, technology can better serve people's finances than, how it's been served historically, whether that's, you know, face-to-face -face interactions or via big banks and the like. Um, and so I think the category is going to be massive. I do think there are, you know, some, okay. there will be winners and losers within that, that bucket. Right. For sure. And that, that is one, one question I had was, uh, FinTech will be massive. I think most people have bought into that vision because they use the tools and you know, that, you know, you know, using stuff like Venmo to pay for things is much quicker than what we did before, you know, uh, using M1 borrow, it's such a cheap, rate compared to anything. Uh, so everybody's used the tools, they understand the value of it. Um, and there's this huge surge of fintech over the past couple years, as you have millions and millions of new retail investors into the market. Um, and just on the, the subject of fintech in general, there's people like Kathy Wood that says, uh, these are going to replace banks. And she says it very like matter of fact, like the big banks, Bank of America, JP Morgan, Citibank, Wells Fargo, etc. She thinks Square, PayPal, these type of companies are just going to overtake the amount of customers and eventually eat away at these banks. And there's other people too. Chamath Palihapitiya said in other terms that the banks are pretty much done over time. What is your like, uh, just kind of looking out in the future, do you see, do you share that kind of vision that fintech will either just keep eating away at banks' profits and their customers and their client base, or will they kind of work with them? Or how do you see that playing out? Um, I, I sort of fall in the combination of both, sort of that wishy-washy uh, okay. both-and type perspective. Um, if you look like, you know, we mentioned Charles Schwab and Vanguard as, you know, sort of disrupting the, the old players. Vanguard came about, and it's not like mutual funds are gone. You know, yeah. they, they still exist in a very fundamental capacity. It's just a lot of the world has moved to passive. You know, it was a, a better idea, better product, better pricing. And right. so, you know, there's a seismic shift over time. And and if I were, you know, I, I, I bet on passive ETFs more than I bet on mutual funds long term. And same right. thing with, you know, Charles Schwab. It's Morgan Stanley and Merrill Lynch were the outdated incumbents at that point. Charles Schwab is, you know, a hundred billion dollar company now is just Morgan Stanley and Merrill Lynch are also hundred billion dollar companies. And so when you look at this in like sort of financial service, I think is, is more generational where, you know, a, a person who is 60 and has a Schwab account and, a, you know, 2 million bucks on there truthfully is likely going to have a Schwab account for the next, you know, 20 years of their life, you know, 25 years of their life. And it's probably going to grow with the, the, the market. And so it's really, you know, sort of more of a generational thing of as the people who are 20s, 30s, and 40s, they're going to sign up for the newer players, the better players, the, the more forward-thinking players. They're going to put their money in there. And then all of those are going to, you know, sort of build up as the, the asset growth happens, the income growth happens, the purchasing power. So, you know, it is more of a generational play than a, you know, hey, JP Morgan Chase is going to zero in five years. I, right. I, I think, okay. you know, that's, that's yeah. a hard thing to, to imagine. If they, it, like said another way, if JP Morgan doesn't sign up another customer, they're going to be a big company for the next 20 years. You know, it, 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 it would take a long time for even just their, their user base to, to. Well, yeah, they have so much. It seems like all the, the fintechs have a lot of, they do a lot of transactions. They have a lot of 
a transactional volume, but it seems like the big banks have a lot of assets. They they control at least they have a lot of assets under management. For sure. Um, the, the the other thing that I would say is fintech and like all these fintech players are not going to be even competitive with the bank until they convince the person with a hundred thousand, two hundred fifty thousand, five hundred thousand dollars to trust them with their money. And if, if if in the mental mind of the consumer, it's still you know, hey, I'll use this as the fun tool in the financial entertainment. But then once I get you know, meaningful get sums money. of money, yeah, you know, I, I move over. That that needs to be broken down for fintech to win out. And I think that's what M one really focuses substantively on. How are we? like truly managing money better than any solution on the marketplace today? And why is it the better option for anybody with any amount of assets? Whether you're starting out with $100 or you have half a million, we need to be able to compete and say our product is you know, better for a variety of reasons and less expensive for a variety of reasons against all the incumbent players. And that's the only way that you can actually take market share from these big incumbents. Do you, do you see on your platform... Uh, user behavior that mimics that where people get to a certain, like they get to like $100,000 or $50,000 and then they move it over to like a, a big guy because they, they're like, okay, now I have, this isn't just play money anymore. Now I need to put it on something more secure, right? Or do you see them st- like sticking with it? I guess, do you see any churn when they hit a certain uh, a certain amount? Uh, truthfully, no. Uh, if anything, it's, it's quite the opposite that over a third, you know, two thirds of our assets have been just cash deposits into the platform. So okay. people, you know, like depositing via ACH. The other one third is bringing over assets from other brokerage accounts. And so, you know, the, the, the person with the quarter million dollar account, the, the typical use case is they try M1 with a thousand or 5,000 or 10,000, try it out for three, four months, and then they bring over their Fidelity account. And so that, you know, is where the bulk of their assets, the bulk of their money is. And that's what buoys up our AUM in a very meaningful capacity. Um, and so if anything, we, we are seeing the opposite of people okay. are almost like nervous to try M1. And so they try it out with smaller sums of money, but then once they get comfortable and they are saying, wow, this is a better, more intuitive, more straightforward, lower cost, more automated way to manage my money. It makes sense to to move from a you know legacy solution. That makes sense. I think, uh, I don't, I don't personally think that uh, younger people, millennials, younger, any, anybody in that range, I don't think they're going to have much of a problem trusting fintech companies ultimately, but I don't see a lot of uh, people already in retirement, taking the retirement out and putting in something like M1 Finance. So it does seem like a generation thing. So you think it will be more of like a kind of slow bleed away from older banks and then the growth of fintech slowly over time, kind of like what we're seeing with like cable and streaming, just a shift from a new technology to an old, like a old technology to a newer one? Yeah, for sure. I think, you know, people... The, the good and bad thing about financial services is people are pretty complacent and, you know, whatever they use right. is sort of what they're comfortable with. And so I, I think a lot of the like more damning statistics are the bank that you use is the one that was closest to your house when you signed up for a bank okay. account. And, and I think that's migrating more as we move to, you know, digital nationwide distribution and people will look and seek out the best and whatever they, you know, will be the best. Is, is what they select. And if it continues to be the best, that's where they'll, they'll uh, manage their money. But if you look at the, you know, it, it's hard for a 30 year old to compete with a 60 year old in terms of, you know, how much money do they have to their name? Cause they've had, you know, eight, 10 years of earning power, whereas the 60 year old has had 40 years of earning power. And so, you know, it, it, it is just a sort of natural evolution of how assets are built up in the United States of you graduate high school or college with little to no assets, maybe in debt, you build up to retirement and then you draw down. And so it, it's, I do think the 
where money is held is more of a like cyclical nature, but people are going to seek out the the best tools available. And I don't like you, you were saying, you know, younger people are, are more trusting of technology solution. I think they're distrusting of banks. You know, I, I think yeah. uh, they're, they're more willing to, you know, trust any of the fintech players or in, you know, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google with things than using a old legacy uh, solution. I think the, the tech forward, forward thinking mentality just resonates a lot more with them. All right. Well, the, the, the next subject on this, on the same subject with fintech and the growth of it overall, um, we've seen what's happened over the past 10 months with a surge of interest in retail investors entering the market. We have, we have the whole GameStop drama. Um, and I was wondering some thoughts on that. Like, what are you, what did you think watching that back? Do you think it played out fairly for Robinhood kind of being the bad guy in that situation? They took a lot of flack uh, with selling order flows. They took flack with stopping trades. Um, they take a lot of flack for not, not, I guess, protecting the investor. And I wanted to know your thoughts on that overall. Like, what do you think when, when Congress or, you know, the Capitol Hill, they're going there and they're taking it to Vlad from Robinhood saying, uh, you're allowing them to do all these crazy things. You know, some of them are on the side of saying you need to uh, clamp down on these type of things. What were your thoughts when you were, you were watching that? Um, it's a combination of a lot of things. I mean, you know, there's like healthy competition and camaraderie between the, the fintech companies. And so, you know, there's like mixed, mixed yeah. opinions anytime something happens to an, uh, a competitor. I think Robinhood's done a, a ton of fantastic things. I think they brought cost down across the entire industry. They've increased the entire user experience threshold. They proved out, you know, people will trust fintechs with, you know, substantive money and, and they have a massive user base and the like uh, associated with it. I think some of the things that they were critiqued for were not fair. I think, you know, payment for order flow is sort of a, a in the weeds type subject, but I actually do think it helps the overall uh, environment more than it hurts or detracts from it. Um, some of the like, you know, like weirder things that they're getting brought in front of Congress for, you know, we, we can talk about specifics and can give perspective on that. I do think like we're, we, the, the two things that if, you know, were to sort of say how, how M1 differs, I do think Robinhood has a trader mentality and they sort of, they, they encourage frequent trading, turning over the portfolio, levered bets with, with options. Whereas M1 is much more investing mindset of you're buying ownership stakes in companies right. or asset classes, and you're trying to benefit from the value accretion over long periods of time. And those are just very, they all start with the same thing of buying a security, but they're very different mindsets of why you're doing it in your time horizon. And so I think there's, you know, we, we just view the world a little differently than Robinhood. And then I, I think Robinhood, you know, and I think Vlad would uh, admit to it, didn't communicate the best um, that, you know, and all the they, interviews they, leading up to it. Yeah, exactly. I think they, they, they should have been more transparent from the, the beginning of the real root cause of the issue. Why? And I think, you know, I, I, and even if they did that, I think there are real critiques to have there, but I think they um, sort of dug a hole for themselves by being wishy-washy, not getting to the heart of the issue. And it, it led the, the narrative to run astray that it felt like, you know, the, the suits versus the little guy. Um, and they just, however they message it sort of played into that. I do think like, even with, uh, you know, how things truly played out, it's not fully understood. Um, and, you know, I think like if, 
but you know, have, have mixed opinions on whether it even should be because it is sort of yeah. the, the depths of the clearing industry and capital requirements and part due to regulation, part due to company capitalization, part due to the, the uh, behaviors that they're encouraging and the like. And so I do think it's a, a pretty complicated topic, but you know, in the, in the media, it's sort of bad guys versus good guys and you sort of pick a side. So it's a <laughs> nuance is not uh, loved in the narrative media narratives. Right. So there, I, th- I think the big criticism for them is that they're uh, like, like you said, like uh, encouraging short-term gamification, this type of thing. Um, I know obviously M1 Finance is a more long-term like, like ownership oriented platform. Uh, how do you plan on it when you see, I can't remember the exact statistic off the top of my head, but after the game stop drama was, is kind of unfolding, there was some days where Robinhood was getting millions of downloads per day on the App Store. It was a top one on iOS. And most of those people, and this is my experience as well, were being asked like, hey, uh, what do you think of GameStop? People that have never talked to me about an investing or stocks ever before. And they're asking me about that, uh, like personal friends I have and stuff. So uh, you see the same attitude with people now downloading their first financial app after this explosive drama because it's caught mainstream attention. Um, how do you with everybody interested in it, but they're doing short term, most likely they're, they're going to lose money doing this type of thing. How do you bring them over to a long term mindset? Like, how do you look at all these new people in the market? Uh, is there any type of strategy to say there's obviously a lot of new, um, you know, a lot of new potential long term investors? How do we get them into a, a mindset that fits better with long term wealth creation? Um. <laughs> It, it, it's tough, you know, it, like I, a VC that I followed, I don't remember exactly who it was, but one said that it's easier to sell candy than it is vitamins. And I think it's sort of that mentality that, you know, like Robin Hood, if you equate it to a different thing, is, is selling a sugary snack uh, versus a substantive yeah. meal. And, you know, that, that's fine. You know, it, it's there's a market for that. There's a demand for that. I do think there's where I have issues is when you claim you're doing otherwise. Um, if you're trying to sell frequent trading, you're encouraging it, and you're saying that this is benefiting people for the long-term wealth building and wealth creation, I think there's a little bit of a mismatch there. And you know, so it's if, if people like people are more interested in the ability to make a quick buck, you know, make money fast. It's why casinos make a ton of money. It's why the lottery make a ton of money. Those are not avenues or strategies that I would ever recommend to a family or friends to say, hey, this is how you should think about money and build wealth over long periods of time. I think it's, you know, it, uh, you know, if, if someone came to me and said, you know, hey, I'm like starting to build up assets, I need to, to think about it. The first thing I said you should do is create an IRA. So tax advantage okay. account, and you can grow, you know, long-term for retirement. And I think it's, it's, it's telling that, you know, some of these trading platforms will have levered options, but they don't have IRA accounts. And so, you know, you, you can sort of talk on one side of their mouth of you know, helping the individual yeah. investor, but, you know, but options pay more uh, is maybe <laughs> uh, one way to, to look at it. And so, um, do you, you know, ever plan ha- on, do you ever plan on having something like options on M1 Finance or any type of time sensitive uh, tools? Yeah, I think we, we would absolutely be open to it for more investor flexibility that, you know, we're trying to really give the people uh, tools to manage their own finances how they want. I do think we would never gear it towards like, you know, selling weeklies or, or you know, short term option trading because I just it, it, it's not our DNA. It's not how we think the, you know, like it's not what we want to spend time and energy to help people benefit their finances. I do think we there are real like strong uses of options, whether it's hedging a portfolio 
or adding additional income with covered calls and the like. And so I think we, if we were to move into it, it's a perfectly good tool and it's really just the application of it. I think we would always have the application be more long-term oriented. How are you, you know, protecting against risk or adding additional income streams and the like versus, you know, how can you make hopefully a lot of money on Thursday, you know? And and so I think it's just a, a little bit of a different mindset and, and, you know, both should be available on the market and, and both people should, uh, both like firms should get customers and customers can can vote with their feet uh, on, on what to use. You were asking about, you know, how do you do it? I think it's it's just being honest to what we're trying to, to do. We're, we're not trying to do the financial entertainment itch. We're not trying to, you know, like have manic swings of, you know, hey, this yeah. is worth nothing on Monday and a ton on Thursday or vice versa. And, you know, sort of encourage that behavior. We're, we're saying, the, the truest way to build and accumulate wealth is to have ownership stakes in valuable things that appreciate over time. And so we're, we're sort of, that's our, our ethos, our mentality. We try to reduce costs for borrowing money and try to give you very flexible terms. Um, and so, you know, we, I think we have our principles that we live by and that's the, the product that we're going to create. We, we know that that's not going to be attractive to, to some people, um, but the, the people that that is attractive to, I think we're going to create the best tool in the marketplace. Okay. Yeah. It does seem like a lot, like that side of it, the short-term side will always exist. Uh, it seemed like, it, it seemed like from the meetings, at least what, what, uh, the Congress was saying to them, at least to me, it came across like, they're like, Hey, we need to protect these people and, you know, give them, I don't know if it was, it's restrict their options and their availability to do different things or to get like more stern warnings, right. To have some type of like you know, on cigarettes, you have the cancer warning. If you have a, a super short-term option, you can have some big warning saying you can lose a lot of money doing this. Um, so you don't think that they're... Uh, you just think that both sides will always be exist, but you're going to always lean on the side of long-term? Yeah, you know, it, it's an interesting, like, sort of philosophical question of, you know, should someone be able to, you know, go take a $10 bill and light it on fire in their backyard, you know, and, and right. I, I wouldn't say that's like a good strategy, but, uh, you know, should they be able to do it? Probably, you know, <laughs> probably above my pay grade is maybe right. the, uh, the better answer to that. I do think options, they're, what's interesting in options is they're, they are complicated products. They're levered bets. You have the ability to make and lose meaningful amounts of money in short periods of time. Um, I do think it's incumbent from a like product design perspective to showcase that as you're bringing customers in and, and you know doing that. And so like whether there should be laws or rules against it, I do think there's an ethical uh, question uh, associated with it. But then even on the, the rule standpoint, there are a lot of uh, financial rules on the um, on the books already that are around suitability. So you know a broker dealer can't, you know, has to ensure that any investment is suitable for their investor. And that, that takes into account their, their income, their net worth, their investing experience, their risk tolerance, their time horizon, the like. And I think, you know, there does become a question of are the rules on the books being enforced of when someone signs up and they say, I have a low risk tolerance, long-term horizon, I really can't afford to lose money, but then I do trade a, a, a weekly option and my account either goes to zero or negative in a short amount of time. Is, is that sort of alignment with what's on the, the books today? Um, <laughs> probably not. Yeah, uh, but, probably you know, not, but it, yeah. <laughs> as long as they know, so you're saying as long as they are aware of, of the possible outcomes of what they're doing, then it's probably, probably okay. Um, well, I have uh, uh, another question is future, um, 
future feature set of M1 Finance. Are you planning on doing anything with crypto? Anything related to that with M1 Finance? At, at, at some point, especially, you know, if the, the market continues like it's going to, you know, seemingly going to continue, uh, we'll, we'll absolutely support something. I think I've, I've said on many interviews and <laughs> I would have thought there'd been a crypto or Bitcoin ETF. Yeah, me too. By now, well. That's yeah, for. exactly. And, you know, in, in some sense, I think we were sort of defaulting into to getting crypto for free and just having it work in our, our uh, sort of existing platform and not having to engineer something that new for it. Right. So, you know, that, that, that's been the, the strategy is sort of <laughs> let it come to well, us uh, and, and it hasn't necessarily worked all that well. Um, but, you know, people have an interest in it, a demand for it. You know, they, they like if they want to put it as a component of their portfolio, we absolutely want to support it. I think it's just more of a prioritization and, and timing effort and a, a, a thoughtfulness of can we improve on the uh, solutions that are in the market and sort of do a unique M1 take on it versus sort of a Me Too solution that is uh, available in a lot of different places now. Just another place to buy crypto, right? Yeah, That's- exactly. Um, you know, we 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 want to, yeah, be additive to the 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 marketplace, and we think there's a lot of ways that we can do that. And you know, working on current initiatives there, uh, I, I would say that we don't have a here's how we improve crypto mindset yet. Okay, yeah, I. I was wondering because I have so many, you see so many, uh, you know, I don't know what to call them, new fintech companies that are just crypto centered and lending crypto and all this type of stuff uh, that it seems like it has a big boom right now. Who knows how long that will last? Some people are very much bought into it for the long term and think it's going to replace a lot of finance to go with that. Uh, so you don't have any plans to add it in. Uh, uh, some people that I, I talked about, I said, I'm going to buy a, a crypto ETF when they come out with one. They're like, oh, but that defeats the point because then you can't act as your own bank, right? You can't have the like uh, where you take it out and you have the wallet with it. Um, I don't really see it. I don't really want to be my own bank is my issue with crypto. (laughs) (laughs) It's not something I've ever wanted to do. So, Um, but no, it doesn't, no plans with crypto in the future. That's pretty much all the the questions I had. Was there anything, anything with M1 Finance, anything that you want to let people know that you're working on? Any Um, message to share? Yeah. So the, the like platform is growing in a very meaningful clip that, you know, if, if you want to invest in a custom portfolio and automate those investments, M1 is by far the best part uh, product on the marketplace. You know, I, I really don't think we have a competitive peer in how we're doing and approaching and thinking about money management. Our borrow product is also, you know, similarly one of the lowest cost ways that you can borrow money. And I think regardless of whether you use it or not, it should be available to you. And so there's sort of that synergistic benefit of if you invest for free, you just get this benefit of low cost borrowing, whether you right. use it or not in its emergency funds. And then our spend account is, you know, one of the highest interest rate checking accounts on the market with cash back on debit card. And we're going to be moving more uh, into sort of having that be a full checking account replacement. And so I think, you know, M1, our, our, our trajectory has been strong. And I think that uh, customers should demand and expect more from us over the, the years to come. What do you think I d- that does bring up one question. What do you think when, uh, like when you see user behavior on your platform and building out the different, the different functionality of it, what do you see as the most underutilized part of it? Like what are people missing with it? Uh, I think we are best known for our invest product. It's a, a, a unique brokerage on the marketplace right. that's really built around portfolio management rather than trading. And I think, you know, you have 99 other options for trading. M1 is really, you know, one of the, the true that's, design the portfolio and invest in the portfolio uh, mentality out there. 
And so I think borrow is a huge value add service of it's a tax advantage line of credit that is lower cost than you can get anywhere else. We're getting meaningful uptake of it, but I, I still think, you know, people, people should be paying down their mortgages and paying off auto loans and, and the like with uh, M1 borrow. It, it's more flexible, lower costs, and, and it's margin interest income. And so it's tax deductible. Yeah. And, then, and then same thing with spend. I mean, we like, we're currently giving away plus for free for a year and you get a 1% interest checking account. There, there's nothing comparable to, to that on the marketplace. And so I think the you know, M1 should be the primary checking account for, for most people if you really want to uh, earn the most amount of money on your idle cash. And so, uh, you know, I, th- I think the newer products are, are underutilized and I think there's a lot of growth to, to be had there. Okay. And you're still planning on building out these three, these three parts of the platform. You're not, there's no new part of the platform you're adding like at least right now? No, yeah, um, those will be the, the pillars for the foreseeable future. And it's really about going deeper in each. And so, you know, more investing options, more intuitive ways to edit and customize your portfolio and get reporting and analysis on how okay. it's uh, doing. Borrow, we will move into other forms of borrowing. And so right now it's only a portfolio line of credit. So borrowing against your portfolio uh, as collateral, but we'll move into the unsecured and uh, and the like, and then spend- like, um, like credit cards or what do you mean by unsecured? And, you know, if you just want a personal loan, so, you know, like, hey, I need 10,000, like, I may not have the $40,000 of investable assets to borrow 10,000, but I need to borrow 10,000 for whatever purpose, so, you know, okay. a kitchen remodel or something like that. And, you know, we can, we can support that or will be able to support that. Uh, and then on the spend side, we are moving into the credit card realm. So we have a debit card that provides high cash back, but, you know, we will be uh, I don't know if I'm spoiling some, some big marketing <laughs> announcement with M1. Uh, I, I've said it elsewhere, but we we will be moving into that realm and giving people higher rewards and doing a lot of creative things in the, the with credit, a credit card, card realm. Uh, with a new credit card. Sorry, what's that? With a new credit card. Yeah, yeah. We okay. you know there will be an M1 issued credit card, and we'll do interesting things with rewards based on your investment portfolio, and you know use the borrow line of credit to to provide you better revolvers and the like. And so, you know, it'll, it'll be a pretty unique credit card on the, the market. Okay. Well, that's exciting stuff. Uh, appreciate it coming on again. Round two. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, Always a pleasure. Yeah. Thanks again, Brian. Okay. Hope you guys enjoyed that interview with Brian Barnes, CEO of M1 Finance. If you guys like these type of interviews where I sit down, ask questions with, with people over different companies, make sure to subscribe to the channel, like the video, share it with friends, because I plan on doing more of these in the future. We have some more lined up. So appreciate you guys for watching. I'll talk to you next time.